to hey all you oh, I think wow did you feel that all right yeah. welcome to hey all you zombies uh, my name is Chris Abel and through the looking glass or the rather mystique uh, filled looking glass over there is my colleague Richard Krause it's very atmospheric over here today about two seconds before we decided to uh, turn on the old internet tubes rev them up and fill them with our goodness uh, the sky turned pitch black and uh, all of a sudden, it became like something out of a Bram Stoker novel just outside my window. So I tweeted, uh, you know, something along the lines of, I just opened my window and stared into the abyss, into the abyss. And it's scary out there. And then my friend Teddy Wilson, who's on inner space on the Space Channel, uh, texted me back or he twittered me back and said, uh, the sky hath opened up like a hellmouth, good sir. <laughs> so I thought that was uh, a rather excellent kind of reference. But it's, no, truly. Uh, it's nasty out there. So, uh, in fact, this show has a little bit more atmospherics to it than usual. Yeah, uh, I noticed that the, even as I'm talking here, the amount of light in my room is going down, down, down. <laughs> I had to open up all the blinds to try to get as much light in so that I could be uh, visible here on the broadcast. I've removed my black jacket. You're going to notice there's going to be lightning strikes yeah. uh, during the broadcast. Uh, and potentially some thunder. You might pick it up. I'm hearing it right now. The wind is just blowing out there like crazy. That's uh, that's fine by me. I, like, I love this one. I grew up in a place where it rained virtually every day. So, you know, the idea that, you know, we might be getting a little rain after, what, I don't know, three months of not getting any <laughs> rain at all, it's yeah. okay by me. But this is, uh, this, I mean, this is, uh, <laughs> it just happened so quickly. I remember being <laughs> in Bangkok years ago, and, uh, I was walking down the street. I'd only been there for a day or so, and I had never experienced a rainstorm over there. And I was walking down the street with a friend of mine who lived there, and, like, one big drop hit in front of us, and the street just went, everyone disappeared. Everyone <laughs> scattered. And I was like, what the hell? It's one drop. And then four seconds later, drops the size of my fists were, like, pelting us. And it doesn't <laughs> rain for very long, but it rains really intensely. And... Uh, people just run. When it starts to rain like that, they just go into whatever doorway that they're, they happen to be close to, and they just disappear, and they stay inside until this torrential rain leaves, you know, a, a foot of, of uh, water on the street. There's big drains everywhere. It drains away fairly quickly, but it's intense while it's happening. Yeah, we had a pretty uh, amazing electrical storm last week, and mm. I could see out my windows that it was just lightning strike after lightning strike. And right. I'm looking now, and I'm starting to see the exact same thing uh, again. I happen to live um, in the southern part of Toronto, so I can see the CN Tower, and that's right. just oh, you know really? one big huge lightning magnet. So it's going to be an interesting day. Well, if the CN um, Tower suddenly crashes through your window, we'll stop. <laughs> we'll take a break. <laughs> Whoa, there we go. Yeah. So, I uh, wanted to update on a couple of things. We don't, sure. we didn't play uh, movie pistols at dawn last week, yeah. but uh, in a previous episode, I did talk about a um, a bird, a mockingbird that right. I had come across, and I've been dutifully going back just to kind of check on him, see how things are going. Uh, last <laughs> this has week, has song attracted any women? Are there are there women birds all over the tree now where he's living? Wouldn't that be awesome? It would be uh, awesome. Yeah, no, I, last time I saw him, he was still kind of single, and, but he looked very tired, like he'd been oh. singing the same song for a very long time. It's uh, rough out past, there. It's hard out there to meet someone, you know? Totally, yeah. <laughs> uh, this past Monday, I went, and when I went to the area, it was like going to Woodstock the day after, mm. and that was just quiet. There, was no, there were no birds anywhere nearby. It was just dead grass and crickets which uh, I guess had decided now the birds were gone, it was safe for them to kind of 
start cricketing away. Uh, I also, on a previous broadcast, talked about uh, an app that claimed to be able to heal any problems with hearing. Right. Um, I'm happy to say that that app has yet to launch. They've had problems getting it into iTunes. Oh, good. Uh, week after week, Apple has not been allowing it to be uh, given a release in iTunes. Uh, they've now tweeted on their Twitter feed that they're going to try and release it as an Android because Android doesn't do any of those kinds of background checks. Right. So, right. but at least you know some an app that I, I was really kind of uncomfortable about launching into the marketplace has been prevented from doing so, and so that's a good thing. See, that's the power of hey, I'll use zombies. I just tell you, you know, you got to build it up somehow. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you um, know. now you were going to talk a, about a, a storm of a different matter, uh, not something that's up in the skies, but uh, up on online on the interwebs. Yeah, well, it, it's sort of something that 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 is on television. First of all, you know, I'm not someone who watches the Olympics. Uh, I'm happy when Canada wins uh, medals. We've won some already. Yo, go Canada. Go Olympians. I love it. But I'm not someone who's going to watch this. And and I uh, I resent a little bit the idea that it's on television everywhere. It's very difficult to, to find anything sort of after a long day of, you know, doing whatever it is that you do, coming home, clicking around the stations, and it's people pole vaulting and stuff. I know a lot of people like it. I'm not one of them. But uh, I did watch part of the opening ceremony. Mm -hmm. The opening ceremony I thought was really fun. The opening ceremony I thought Danny Boyle, the, of course the great director of you know, Train Spotting and Slumdog Millionaire and many other great movies, um, I thought he did a fantastic job of making a truly eccentric, weird opening that was tailored to his country. Did you hear that? Rumble yeah, outside? That's crazy. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid to sit here with this piece of metal in my ear right now that, you know, a lightning bolt's going to come through. Um, but uh, I think that he tailored it perfectly to England. It's a country uh, full of wonderful eccentrics, and the, the, the opening was wonderfully eccentric and fantastic. I liked it. Uh, but NBC started off on sort of a, a rough note with me uh, with uh, Meredith Vieira saying, you know, doing her commentary, and she says, you know, uh, there's a little tribute there to Tim Berners-Lee, whoever that is, or something like words to that effect. And wow. I, was thinking of, I was thinking to myself, you know, Meredith, you're probably sitting in front of a computer. Maybe Google it. Oh, wait, he's the guy that made it possible for you to Google that. He's the guy that invented the damn Internet that you use every day. You know, oh, it, just struck yeah. me, it, it just struck me that, um, it was uh, a, a case, or the first case really that I noticed, of NBC uh, not really uh, having their act together in, in a really big way. Now, since then, there's been complaints about the tape delays on everything. Uh, the thing that I wanted to talk about, though, is a British journalist named Guy Adams uh, has been uh, taken off Twitter. He's been bounced. If you go try and find him on Twitter right now, it just says, account unavailable. And it all stems uh, from... Uh, well, he's been he's been tweeting uh, considerable amounts about NBC uh, and how you know they haven't been doing a, a particularly good uh, job here. And so he's been tweeting things like, "I have a thousand channels on my TV, not one of them showing the Olympics opening uh, ceremony live because NBC are utter utter bastards." Stuff like that is what he's been tweeting. Wow. Uh, now, shortly after all that, he attempted to check his Twitter account. And when he logged on, he was uh, presented with a message saying that he had been suspended, and then there's a, a, a link that you click. And so uh, he clicked on this link, and uh, he was told 
that because he had published an email address uh, for someone very high up at NBC to, you know, you can email them and complain that he's being bounced. He's being taken off uh, Twitter. He's being suspended. Now, um, the, the thing that's interesting about this is that not only was, and, uh, apparently in this letter, it said that uh, Twitter has a policy against uh, publishing uh, personal email accounts, uh, email addresses. I get that. I totally get that. I mean, you don't want, uh, you know, me to be putting up, you know, my ex-girlfriends, you know, or whatever. Like, you know, someone that you have a beef with, you don't want to be, you know, hey, write this asshole and tell him what an asshole he is, and then giving an email address. I get that. Sure, I understand yeah. that. But this was an email address that if you Googled, use that thing that Tim Berners-Lee uh, created, uh, if you spent two minutes Googling, you could find it yourself. So, um uh, I, I thought that was a little hypocritical. I also, uh, as it turns out, apparently there is no real such rule. There's and, no. Oh, okay. There is, yeah. So I just wonder what all this is about. Is there corporate pressure happening here? Is it the idea that, uh, you know, during the 2010 Olympics, there were about 50 million tweets being sent a day. Now right. there's upwards of 400 million tweets being sent a day. So Twitter has become... Uh, much more of a, of, a, of a driving force. It's a way that people really, in a lot of cases now, are getting their news first. And, and you know, the idea that it's possibly scooping the television uh, coverage uh, of, you know, some of the majors who have paid hundreds of millions of dollars to get their broadcast rights here might be rankling to them. So is there possibly, I don't know, allegedly, I'm using all the right words uh, here, uh, some pressure to, uh, to you know, keep criticism to a, mini uh, a minimum of the, the kind of coverage that's been uh, handed out. Um, I don't know. I don't, and we may, we may never know. But what I do know is that Guy Adams uh, doesn't have a Twitter account right now because of something that, to me, doesn't seem like he was breaking the rules. And so it becomes a free speech issue now. And, right. I mean, you're much more entrenched in this world than I am. What's your take on it? Um, well, I think the concern that maybe Twitter is looking at and one of the issues that they've been facing is that um, Twitter has this possibility where you can almost ambush somebody. Right. Uh, if, if somebody you know, starts to complain against a celebrity and that celebrity retweets that uh, message, right. then suddenly you get this army of like 500,000 people just sort of ambushing that person. And I think Twitter is trying to understand how you kind of cope and deal with that. Uh, whether or not the person deserved to be attacked, uh, the, the volume or the scale of which it can happen is right. sort of, I guess, unfair. And maybe that that was what they were reacting was uh, that he had specifically published this executive email's address and said, go get them. And, yeah. you know, and this guy could I, theoretically get thousands of emails. Then. Oh, completely. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, I think that um, there's a big difference here between um, pointing, say, publishing the email address of an employee that works for a pub plumbing company mm -hmm. or a utility or an institution and an executive that works for a broadcasting network right. uh, who, you know, should be a target of complaint of consumers who are unhappy with their service or their particular product. Uh, so I think it's, it's a little much. Obviously, the only way that Twitter would have reacted to the situation is if NBC had filed a complaint with them and had been very right. vocal in that. Um, what would be interesting is how Twitter can kind of work with the journalist in question to kind of overcome it and say, okay, well, here's the parameters. You, you can continue to criticize them. Just don't publish this email address. Right. Uh, they should at least open up his Twitter account and move it forward. I, I think that keeping it closed is, is where things have gone wrong. Well, see, and I think, I mean, it, you know, as a journalist, 
and as someone just, you know, on Twitter who, frankly, I don't think really did anything wrong. I mean, I get, I get what you're saying about the idea that this, this executive could get spammed and, you know, all that. And Twitter is a relatively new thing, and they, you know, their influence is growing literally, you know, by the hour. You know, we're still at a, at a, at a, at a place in Twitter's history where things are changing very quickly, you know. And, and I mean, 400 million tweets a, a, a day, that's, that's an insane amount of information and power, you know, that, that, that Twitter has. So I get it. Not all the kinks have been worked out. Not all the ways of dealing with every situation that's going to arise have been worked out. But for me, it's a free speech issue. And, and you know, this guy uh, um, should be able to uh, comment. I mean, you know, it, listen, if we can't comment on things that annoy us, I wouldn't have a job anymore. <laughs> no journalist would. No, you know, no, no yes. one that... No one that, that uh, you wouldn't be able to speak about that app last week that incensed you so much, you know. And so Completely. these things like little, you know, they seem like little things, little insidious things, you know, that, that sort of creep up every now and again. But, you know, you think, oh, whatever, his, his Twitter account was suspended. Ooh, he can't tweet anymore. It seems trite, but it's a big deal. I think it's a big deal that uh, someone's ability to communicate in that way uh, has been taken away. Now, he could always just open up another one. Unless his uh, his IP address has been blocked, I don't know. But you know, um, there are ways around it, I suppose. But it sets a bad precedent. Right. Well, I think my issue with it is that the, it's the permanency of the situation. Right. That uh, at, traditionally online, you always have sort of that cease and desist moment where right. you inform somebody of what they've done, how they've erred, and then as long as they acknowledge, okay, well, you know maybe I shouldn't have done that and kind of move forward, then the account should have been opened up. But I think it's, it's, you're right in that it's insidious against NBC, who should, um, more than anybody on the planet, be able to take this kind of response or criticism. All of us who put ourselves in the public eye, uh, at one point in time, are going to be you know, the subject of an avalanche of unhappiness mm -hmm. and criticism, and you have to learn how to take it. Uh, and NBC has been receiving a lot of criticism. I know their opening ceremony uh, broadcast... No, that was a scary one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was full of commercials, uh, full of a name commentary. There were a lot of complaints online. It, it wasn't specific to this one journalist. I noticed that just even on the piracy websites, there was a lot of Americans trying to get copies of mm -hmm. the Olympic broadcast from yeah. uh, the BBC and other you know broadcasters as well. So it's not that there was anything. Um, unnecessarily mean-spirited or that somebody was going after NBC for the sake of going after NBC. No, there were valid complaints out there. There were valid right. reasons to be critical of NBC. That should not be uh, shut up. That should not be, you know, uh, closed permanently. I, I don't think so either. And, and, and that's the thing that I, I just thought it was, you know, it, and it seems like one of those little things, as I said. It just seems like, how oh, it's a Twitter account. It doesn't well, matter. But the Twitter accounts, I mean, you know, it, they, they lead to bigger things and, and bigger erosions of your rights. And it's an unusual um, situation to have just after that legal case in England where there was a fellow who had been frustrated when one of the airports had been That's closed right. due to snow. And he joked and he, about bombing, right? Yeah. yeah, he joked about blowing up the place. And the conclusion of that case has been that you cannot hold him to fault uh, just for something as, as inane as a tweet. Right. That, yes, right. we do have that right to be frustrated with situations and to find ways in which we can voice that. That doesn't necessarily make us a terrorist. And so, you know, having just had that ruling, just had that situation resolved with that conclusion, it seems really strange that uh, Twitter would respond in this fashion and not say, well, you know, I mean, here we have a situation with a guy saying, I, you know, I'm so upset that you should blow up the airport. Right. 
if that's allowable, then some guy saying, I'm really annoyed with the, uh, the Olympics broadcast, you should let the man in charge of it know how you feel, uh, that should also be allowable. Well, it, it, it seems to me, too, that, you know, for, for 10 days or two weeks every year, uh, people go crazy. You know, during the Olympics, uh, it seems like, you know, the, the people that run the Olympics can uh, go after uh, a grandmother who uh, knit a tiny, apparently it was a little baby sweater about this big, you know, just large enough for an infant, but she put the, you know, the distinctive logo on it, and she was going to sell it for the equivalent of about $2 at a yard sale, and somehow was sent a cease and desist letter from, you know, in trademark infringement uh, because she used the Olympic uh, colors and symbols. Apparently, there are a list of words that they have trademarked, which I didn't think you could do, that you're not allowed to use in a sentence together. Now, maybe they don't own the trademarks, but they own the cumulative effect of having them all put together in one sentence. And there's an internet radio station that I listen to from London who has found a, a really creative way around it. And they, they, they say things like, uh, it's an ad, and they'll say, uh, at the beginning of this sentence, we will use the word rings. Next sentence is the word, and then they, they, they've broken it up very clearly so there can be no misunderstanding. But uh, you know that a team of lawyers had to look at that first before that, that you know, seemingly innocuous, funny little commercial went to air. Yeah, I hope it'll get to the point where um, you have the same situation with, say, Lucasfilm or Nintendo companies like Walt Disney that were notorious for jumping down anybody's throats for even using any of their, their, their iconography to get to the point where they understand the difference between someone who's trying to actually uh, make money and sell a product and someone who's just trying to be a fan. And the term that I've heard used from those companies is acceptable copyright infringement. Right, right. You have to kind of label certain things. And so you could go after uh, somebody that wants to print up T-shirts and sell them on the street. Sure, but, you know, a little grandmother that's knitting something. A that's little a little baby sweater. Well, the, I, I remember there was a story in the, in the you know, sort of 80s. Uh, Disney were very, very strict about their copyright and the, and the way that they held on to their copyright. And there was a, a, quite a famous story about a daycare in Florida, let's say, I don't know, small town somewhere, that had painted Disney characters on the side of their wall. And, of course, you know, the hand of God comes down to squash this, you know, thing. You have to two days to paint over them or, you know, we'll close you down and blah, 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 blah. And so Hanna-Barbera found out about it and went sent a team of animators down, and they drew Yogi Bear and, you know, stuff all over the, the thing, all their characters, they look like the good guys, and Disney not so much at that moment, you know, and, and yeah. um, now that policy, I think, has lightened a little bit, they've, they've realized that there is a considerable amount of goodwill that goes along with, you know, not being seen as a corporate monolith, particularly when you're dealing with things that appeal to kids and children and that kind of stuff, but uh, yeah, the Olympics doesn't seem to be there yet. They don't seem to quite understand that yet. They apparently, there was a story in the National Post for this, they apparently had uh, someone who had, uh, was so like a meat shop, they had taken sausages <laughs> and formed them into rings, you know, and sort of hung them in their window. And even that was considered a trademark infringement. Wow. Oh, please, people, we really have to, uh, you know, like, you know, learn to lighten up just a little bit. Yeah, I guess the idea is that the Olympics cost so much money and the yeah. incentive to hold them is to make money if you can, yeah. that you know they want to control the fact that if you're going to be a fan and go out in the street and cheer on your athletes, that you're buying official gear to do so, that you're going out and getting the red mittens with the little roots, yeah. uh, you know, 
maple leaf, maple leaf on it, on it. Yeah. and not sort of sitting at home and making your own because that would sort of take money and support away from the Olympics. But somehow they got to find a compromise between yeah. the two worlds. Uh, yes, you have to look after your profits and the funding for the Olympics, but at the same time, you have to allow people to be people and to express themselves uh, in their own way because that's where participation really comes from. Well, the, the guy that used to be in charge of the branding for the Olympics uh, apparently has come out and said, listen, we really have to lighten up here. We're becoming the big bad guys. We're becoming the ogres of the sports world. So let's, you know, chill out on this a little bit. So we'll see what happens next year. You've got a couple of years till the Winter Olympics, so we'll see. See what Hopefully, yeah. I, one of the things that uh, George Lucas did that I thought was very smart was that as soon as he did that complete flip, where they're no longer closing, uh, closing down people who made little Star Wars shorts, they began yeah. to release actual editing tools and sound effects and yeah. images that were uh, considered to be permissible to use for your own purposes. And that's what the Olympics have to kind of do, is reach a point where they can say, anybody wants to use this version of our logo or these phrases, by all means, go ahead and do so. But just stay away from the ones that we're actually using on our products and, and you know, go from there. In either that and, uh, or, and or start funneling some money into, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, training uh, or help to train uh, the uh, amateur athletes who perform for nothing while the uh, you know the the uh, Olympics uh, committees are making billions of dollars, there might be a little inequity there somewhere. No, very clue, uh, very true. Um, uh, well, before we we sort of you know hang up the the Olympics, I did want to mention that I'm I'm pretty happy and excited that the um, the Olympians who so far have been bringing home medals for Canada uh, includes a woman named Jennifer Abel. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> um, had a few people. <laughs> Now, she's from Montreal, so in Montreal they pronounce it as Abel, whereas I'm you know, right. from the English side of Canada, we pronounce it as Abel. Right. But I have had some people reach out to me and ask if I'm related to her. Um, I think that it's highly unlikely, although there are very few Abels in Canada. So it's not a name that, that I've heard of. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's a very kind of uncommon and rare name around the world, but you will find it all around the world just because it's a name that comes from the Bible. And so you have families in various countries that have taken it from the Bible as their family name. doesn't mean that we're necessarily related. Uh, with her case, Jennifer Abel, her father is from Haiti, and so there's sort of a, an entire French version right. of the Abels down right. there. Right. Um, but who knows? Maybe in a distant way we're, we're kind of distant, distant cousins. But either way, very happy to see uh, the, the name on the podium. And I've watched her diving sequences, and it's just spectacular. I, I'm blown away by the, the, the athletic skill that's involved. Well, I will look her up online on a feed other than NBC's feed. <laughs> yes, by all means. Well, welcome to YouTube. There's lots yeah, of videos yeah. <laughs> and, and, and on YouTube there. Um, okay. So what I wanted to talk about was one of my favorite topics, which is robots. And I'm going to pull mm. up the image here as soon as I can. Everybody um, likes is, a robot. Everybody likes to, well, you know, from Ultraman to the Shogun Warriors to Robotech to Battle Mechs all the way up to, I think, what most people would recognize, which is Robocop. Right. There has always been this fantasy of uh, having a large, massive robot that you can climb inside and right. pilot like you would a, a fighter jet. And over the years, there's been a couple of attempts at doing that. This is the one that uh, oh, has just cool. been unveiled this week. Yeah. Uh, it's actually called... Um, Kuradas is the name of the, the robot, and uh, it's just been unveiled in Japan. Now, 
there have been a lot of attempts at trying to make these robots. This one is yeah. one that you can actually climb inside. The chest opens up. You get inside. There's an actual full-on uh, cockpit, if I can bring up the, the screen right. here. But over the years, there have been sort of attempts at kind of doing this thing. There's the cockpit there. Oh, beautiful view from inside. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Uh, lots of touch screens and joysticks and all sorts of cool stuff. And that's yeah. really what makes a difference. I've seen large-scale robots in the past, but they've been nothing more than sort of cosmetic statues. They right. look so like robots, but they don't really move or, or more, act like them. More like big versions of this. This little wind-up yeah, toy that I have right here. It is one of my, I love this thing, but it's not really uh, terrifying <laughs> or useful in any way. No. Well, and this is like a 13-foot tall, so there it is compared to a delivery truck. You can see just how massive wow. and big it really is. Wow. That's it, it's awesome. very large, uh, and it weighs 4.5 tons. So this is a massive thing. This is very close to what you would see in the cartoons or the comic books or the video games that I get to play. Uh, Except so that pretty, he's on wheels, I see. It's different. Like, he doesn't walk. Correct. So he that's rolls. where... The, the, I mean, they say they're selling the dream here, uh, right. but that's where the dream doesn't quite match because he does just kind of roll around. Right. Uh, it is basically a vehicle with a robotic torso on top. Um, right. And it doesn't go very fast. I believe it's about 2.6 miles per hour. Well, the thing weighs, uh, you know, three tons. You don't want it to go that fast. No, no <laughs> not at all. Uh, but what's cool is uh, that beautiful cockpit in terms of the functionality. Yeah. So they actually, it's a gas-powered diesel motor, uh, and inside you've got all the actuators and the, the, the hydraulics for things like being able to move the arms. Unfortunately, the hands don't open, so it can't grasp things, right. which would really make it a robot in my dreams. Yeah. But here's where things get crazy. Um, we're gonna pull. That. They have this insane video, and I'll post it on our website. Where if you've seen Which the movie, HeyAllYouZombies.com. HeyAllYouZombies.com. They've got this fantastic promotional video with this very adorable mm -hmm. model yeah. who takes you through the whole process of how you drive this. And in addition to having this massive robot, which can, uh, it has hydraulics that lifts up its torso, so it actually goes higher, uh, has arms that reach out. They've also, as you can see in this photograph, they've weaponized it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, and, you know, the cheerful, smiling face as she's I know. All the, <laughs> it's the cheerful, smiling face of mass destruction is what it now, is. <laughs> now, the uh, creators of this have said this is meant to be a, a toy for, for millionaires. It costs about $1.35 million if you want to get one. Uh, and so in terms of what they weaponized it with for now is just for playing around. What you're looking right. at here is the equivalent of a rocket launcher, but it's powered by high-pressure water. And so this shoots water bottles. Oh, fun. Well, yeah. except that it could still really hurt. And, I mean, at that point, you know, you could, you could probably still tear a building down with them. Oh, completely. I agree. Like, that was the first, because they make the statement where they says right here, designed to be eco-friendly and safe for humans. Yet, I have to tell you, if you got hit by a water bottle, I bet you it hurt pretty bad. Yeah, going 100 um, miles an hour shooting one of these things, absolutely. Then they, on the other side, you actually have here uh, Gatling guns that have been mounted into one arm that shoot 6,000 bullet, uh, BB bullets a minute. Wow. I don't know if you've ever had a... This doesn't and seem again, right. And again, you've got this dystopia there. You know, this is the beginning <laughs> of your dystopian world. Look, everyone. I'm the Vanna White of terror and mass destruction. 
Yeah, just smiling away. Hey, look, it shoots 6,000 BB bullets a minute. Uh, and it's safe for human beings, you know? So here's it's safe for human beings if you're behind it. If you're actually the one shooting, you're probably not going to get hurt. If you're in now, any, if you're standing in front of that thing in any way, though, wow. I'm I'm checking to see if I still have the one image. Uh, I don't have it lined up. But anyways, when you're in that cockpit, you can actually see the people that the gun can see through a gun camera. Right. And it will lock onto people's faces using face recognition. Wow. Like, like the Terminator. Like, like the, the Terminator. Terminator. Or, or wow. like that view you see in RoboCop when they suddenly realize yeah. that it's it's not in safe mode and everybody starts running away and the one guy's running, it's just tracking yeah. and tracking. Does that completely. But if that wasn't eerie enough, okay, it has a smile mode. So what this means is there is a Connect Xbox sensor inside the cockpit that's looking at your face. And you can set it because you've got so many controls, Richard. You've got one set of controls to drive the wheels. Right. You've got another set of controls to manipulate the guns. What do you use to fire? Well, you use your face. Anytime you smile, it will shoot. Wow. So if you start, like, laughing maniacally, like, aha, I've come to cause the end of the world, yeah, that's when exactly. you start shooting and firing things. Wow. Yeah, they wow. call it smile shot. So it will recognize when you're smiling. And if you see the video, she's smiling, and it, it sort of immediately cuts to the poor guy that's running around in a panic, uh, laughing maniacally. And, of course, this thing starts to shoot in response uh, because of it. None of this there seems right to me. No, yeah, there's a, a bit of a, a scary, eerie, yeah. sinister. It's like, fine, make a large uh, giant robot. Anybody who's rich enough to have enough land that they can drive this around, party time. Yeah. Very, very different when you start to get to things like, you know, it, having the ability to recognize human beings, having weapons that even though they're, they're, they're not bullets, real bullets, real ammunition, it's sort of play ammunition, still scary. Well, uh, and, 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 to, and the smiling, the idea that smiling makes the guns go bang is terrifying. It's like such a, it's like something that would be out of like a B science fiction novel. You know, the, yeah. when the, the villain laughed, bullets flew out of his mouth. Well, it's, you know, it's the same idea. Yeah. Terrible. I find this terrible and upsetting. It is. Yeah. Uh, and it's, they, they call the feature smile shot. Um, Which, it, it, it's crazy. Yeah. Now, when I look at this, a lot of what I'm seeing is technology that actually is off the shelf. Most cameras have face recognition, but most cameras have uh, a smile shot feature today. It's not for shooting yeah. weapons. It's for shooting the camera. Uh, a lot of what I'm seeing, though, is sort of existing technology that's sort of being brought together. And so it's interesting to understand that we are getting to the point where technology is, is matching science fiction at a much faster rate than it ever has before. And that this isn't just uh, one big rich toy for, for millionaires, but in 10 or 15 years, right. you're going to see variations of these vehicles that are going to be more and more accessible. The, the Segway is soon going to become uh, a tank that everybody can drive around. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, oh, uh, I am, uh, I'm, I'm a little shocked by this. I mean, the idea that they have the smiling Vanna White character. Oh, yeah. Whose who's, who's grin triggers uh, the guns is a little, I'm um, having a hard time wrapping my head around that. Well, and you have to understand that they, they probably are inspired by the movie RoboCop yeah. and by other movies in terms of doing this and not understanding that that was intended to be satire. That when you see those happy-go-lucky demonstrations in movies like RoboCop or Battle Royale, it's intended to be sinister as it's you're, you're scary, laughing at. Uh, yeah. 
completely different when it's an actual machine that you can buy. Wow. Well, well, I'm not sure. Uh, but, I mean, who knows? I mean, like, the technology, everything is changing so quickly. I don't have to tell you. But it's just <laughs> terrifying to me, you know, the idea that uh, people that maybe don't have that fine line, you know, they're, they're, this is a thin line between love and hate. Well, this is a thin line between satire and, you know, uh, realism as well. And I think that if people uh, don't know which side of the fence they're on on that one, it can be, lead to some pretty scary results like we see here. Yes, and what I find is that we, you know, I mean, this is, of course, in Asia, where there is a much uh, more dramatic culture towards building large-scale robots. Here in the Western world, it tends to be um, popping up more in kids' toys. And so one of the things that uh, is anticipated to arrive is that you're going to see rideable robots for kids. So one day, instead of... Okay, that sounds cool. Yeah, instead of having a bicycle... You could be a little boy riding around on a robotic dragon or a robotic dinosaur. But how do you get exercise doing that, though? How do you get exercise doing that? <laughs> a very good question. But you can ask fat kids riding around on robots. I mean, it just doesn't seem like the more we allow technology to sort of suck away some of this stuff. I mean, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, I think it's cool, but I don't know that we're actually, you know, helping ourselves in a lot of ways. I guess Says you could say the grumpy old like, man. Yeah. Yeah. That it's similar to uh, kids who actually have access to things like ponies or horses. Yeah. Uh, they go off on the ride, and number they get their exercise elsewhere. Um, yeah, I don't know, but yeah, a very interesting, you know, development and scary at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, my book, which comes out October first. Hey, isn't that a smooth segue into another story? Um, the first review came in uh, yesterday, oh, really? uh, written by Tom Ernst. Uh, on his Saturday Night at the Movies blog. Uh, you can read it at uh, Sanam, which is snam.tvo.org blog. We'll, we'll post this on the, on the Hey All You Zombies uh, website. Yeah. But it, he, he wrote a lovely review. I'll just uh, um, I'll, I'll read the last line. This is the kind of tell-all book that reads with the literacy of a Gore Vidal inside drama. It's funny, rude, insightful, and then back to being funny again. So it goes on. It's a nice review. So I was thinking uh, about reviews um, after this came in. And, of course, I spend a great deal of time writing them and, and doing them myself. And so uh, while I was sort of, you know, thinking of all this kind of stuff, uh, I, I came across this. Now, Chris Brown, as we all know, uh, is a extremely successful uh, singer, songwriter. Uh, he uh, is possibly, though, most famous, and I say possibly, I'm not sure, he's <laughs> quite famous for uh, being uh, the man that beat Rihanna up as well. And right. we all saw those photos, and it was a, it was a terrible thing. It happened a few years ago. Now, uh, he's 22 or 23 years old now. This happened when he was 19, uh, and it has stayed with him. So uh, Chuck, or Chad Taylor, uh, has written a review of uh, the album Fortune, and uh, he just wrote uh, in, in very simple language, Chris Brown hits women, enough said. That was the entire review of the album, uh, which wow. reminded me of uh, an album. There used to be a band called GTR years ago, and GTR was uh, like a super group made up of uh, guitar players, and I can't remember who was in the band, but it was people like Joe Satriani, I think, and two or three of them, and they, they made this insane guitar album. And I think it was Musician Magazine 
that uh, wrote one of my favorite reviews. It just said, GTR is SHT. That was the entire review, which I thought was kind of <laughs> succinct. And that's what we're, that reminded me of. So Chris Brown gets women and upset. Then another woman, uh, or a woman named Chloe Pappas, uh, has written a much longer review. And she calls uh, the record repugnant. Um, we can only hope this will be his last. And uh, she goes on and on to say, um, let's see, regardless of whether Chris Brown has any musical talent, in parentheses, he doesn't, or whether this album was any good, in parentheses, again, it isn't. The man recently brutally assaulted a woman and is still regularly invited back to award shows and worshipped by Breezy, that's his nickname, Breezy fans worldwide, which is, frankly, disgusting. And for those of you out there saying that we need to separate music and the man, screw you. Don't encourage his actions. Final words, don't buy this album. And now, while I'm not uh, not on her side on this, I'm not a Chris Brown fan, um, I had to sort of take issue, I think, a little bit with the, the personal nature of the review. And I, I get why she's upset. I mean, it's very clear why she's upset. Chris Brown uh, broke one of those rules, laws, humanity rules, that should never be broken and did a, a, a terrible thing. He has apparently paid his debt uh, since then. And I just wonder, though, uh, that even though I have a hard time watching him when he was on, he was on the Grammys recently, and that was at the point at which we picked up the remote and clicked right. the channel. But I, I, I just uh, I wonder when reviews become personal, uh, if it's the reviewer's job to separate the art from the person. We see this all the time with Mel Gibson. Now, Mel Gibson movies, and, and this is more in my realm, and I can speak a little bit more comfortably about this. Mel Gibson is someone who was one of the biggest movie stars on the planet for many years. He is certainly still, one of, in terms of name recognition, one of the most famous actors out there. And yet, uh, his movies, no one will touch his movies anymore because of the you know, horrible anti-Semitic things that he spouts uh, his recent run-in, not recent now, but his, his run-ins with the law, all that stuff has, has soiled his reputation to the point at which uh, he, you know, is virtually unemployable, I think, and, and very unpopular now. Except I saw The yeah. Beaver. I saw not his last movie, which was uh, Get Me the Gringo or something like that it was called, was never released to theaters. It was dumped after the poor reception that a movie called The Beaver got. Now, The Beaver was directed by Jodie Foster, who was one of his good friends, and she stands by him, as does Whoopi Goldberg and a number of other people have known him for a very long time. And uh, he was terrific in this movie. And I found myself watching this movie in the theater and having to uh, intellectually separate, you know, the man from the art and wondering to myself at that moment, you know, can I judge the art and, and not the artist? And I think some people have had this problem with Woody Allen over the years after oh, yeah. his, you know, uh, uh, dalliance, well, long term, he's still married to uh, a woman who was his, yeah, and Roman Polanski is another one. Uh, and, and I found myself, when I wrote the review, I found myself explaining, I'm judging the art, not the artist here. Mel Gibson is still a terrific artist, no matter what you say about uh, his personal beliefs and all that sort of thing. Um, he still makes uh, interesting, well, I don't know what he still makes, but he can still deliver an interesting performance, as he did in The Beaver. And so when I read this Chris Brown review, I just thought, it's not enough. Here's the thing. This is what I thought about it. It's not enough to say, uh, you know, is he talented? No, he isn't. 
Well, that doesn't really tell me anything. I understand your position. You, you, you don't like him because of uh, the past that he shares with Rihanna. I get that. I understand that. I feel the same way. But if I was to write that review, I think that I would actually write about the music and try and leave my personal my personal feelings out of it. And if I if I could truly say, you know what, I don't like this, I would tell you why. Beyond the fact that he uh, is someone who did uh, an inexcusable thing, and I don't know. I mean, it's a it's a difficult line for reviewers, and I understand that. But that's how I feel about it. I mean, um, you know, uh, it, it's it's very easy just to to uh, trash something because you you have a personal problem with it. But I think that the higher road is to uh, maybe you know accept that you have a problem and then funnel that into the writing and actually write something that has more to say about the art than the artist. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. That's fair. But I, 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 I know nothing about this record. Now, I will never listen to this record. <laughs> no, <laughs> I will never hear this I. record. And neither will I. And, and I will do that. But I also wasn't reviewing it. And if I, had, if I was to review it, I think that I would, I would have to put myself in a position where I would judge the art and, and then hopefully – you know, be able to make a, a reasonable assumption without just saying, you know, I didn't like it and I didn't like it because he's an asshole. Right. Um, well, the way I look at it as, as someone who has written reviews about video games and tech uh, is that I guess I have two immediate thoughts on that. The first one is that your main responsibility is to your readership more than anybody else. Right. And you have to make sure that if they're going to read your review, you're taking care of them and giving them something that they can walk away with. Uh, you know, just shutting down the review and saying, I don't want to talk about this guy because he's, he's bad, isn't helpful to anybody. No. Uh, it may serve, you know, the reviewer's own personal feelings, but that's not your job. Your job is to take care of the readers that have come to you. Uh, and then the second thought that I have is that a review doesn't have to a answer just one question, that mm -hmm. you can break up the issues into different questions and sort of address them separately. You have to kind of be honest and say up front, number one, I got a problem with this musician, not necessarily because of his music, but because of what he's done in his personal life. And right. I'm going to address that first, just to let you know this is the kind of guy that we're going to review. Right. And then sort of take a look at the music itself and say, all right, now let's put that off to the side and let's just talk about him as a musician. I'd like to believe that a guy who behaves that way in real life isn't, should be reflected within the art and should make really bad art, but let's right. take a look at it and, and kind of, and treat your audience intelligently enough to say, well, let's take a look at it and let's say what's wrong and what's right. And at the same time, sort of give people an understanding of what could have been done that should have been right in yeah. terms of, of making the album. Uh, you know, other musicians are going to be reading your reviews, uh, looking for pointers. This is the opportunity to grasp and do that. It's to focus on other musicians and your audience rather than trying to focus on taking this guy down, which I don't think ever actually uh, accomplishes anything. No, I agree. And listen, I, I, I want to make it quite clear. I'm more on Chloe Pappas's side than I am on Chris Brown's side here. And as I say, I, 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 haven't, I haven't heard the record. I won't hear it. I won't listen to it, probably. I will hear if there are hits from it. I will probably hear them out and about somewhere. But it won't be something I'll seek out. But um, I'm not going to not listen to it because of that review, because that review doesn't tell me enough uh, right. for me to be able to make up my own mind about it. And that was my issue with it. You know, I was sort of, you know, looking around thinking, I wonder if I can find other uh, examples of takedowns that are maybe a little bit more artful 
and I did it. Uh, literary, if you want artful takedowns, go no further than the, the world of literary uh, reviewers. So Dorothy Parker uh, wrote on a science book that she was reviewing, she wrote, it was written without fear and without research. So it's a pretty good little takedown. Uh, on the book, uh, Shoot If You Must, she wrote, this must be a gift book. That is to say, a book which you wouldn't take on any other terms. And uh, Mark Twain wrote a lot of criticism as well. And on Henry James, he said, once you put one of his books down, you simply can't pick it up again. You know, that was a pretty nice. good little line. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, the thing with those reviews is that you don't feel bad that you spent the time to, to read them. The other right. ones sound like the, the reviewers are just wasting my time. Why am I yeah. giving you a column? You're just going to give me that, you know? Yeah, I wanted more. I wanted more. I mean, I, I had a friend of mine who uh, made a movie that, that, that uh, you know, needed some work before it was released, and I didn't get it. And uh, she got reviewed, and the reviews were really personal. And I, I uh, it, it really... Uh, the way she reacted to it, uh, she was, you know, stronger than I might have been in that same situation. But it really taught me a great deal to be very sensitive uh, to writing these reviews that aren't personal. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're reviewing art and the person are two very different things, I think. And, you know, people can make a bad movie or make a bad, you know, book or whatever it is. And it doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means that they haven't made great art. Um and, but it, it's, it's our job as people that communicate that uh, to, to tell people why, not just to, uh, to uh, scold. Right, and there's nothing wrong with sort of exhibiting passion, mm -hmm. but uh, be passionate about why the, the art has failed rather than being passionate about trying to make it personal and take somebody down. Right. I mean, I have no problems with a reviewer that says, this could have been so much better, or yeah. you were missing the point, or we finally yeah. needed a, an album or review that the review a record or movie that talked about this subject and you really kind of missed it, you could have done better. I don't mind that kind of passion. But if someone's just going to, you know, start to turn it into a personal insult or, or just, you know, trying to encourage everybody to kind of be bullied, you know, that, that sort of school mob mentality, yeah. let's all gang up on this person, I think that doesn't help anybody. Now, and, you know, just before I, I uh, switched on the internet tubes here and before the crazy storm, which is now kind of settled down a little bit started, I was writing a review for a movie called uh, 360. And 360 is an interesting thing. It's directed by Fernando Morales, who made uh, um, The Constant Gardener and uh, City of God. He's an extraordinarily gifted director. And he's made a movie that uh, is by times magical and by times really confounding. And it's a difficult movie to write about because um, he has taken many, many stories and he's trying to thread them together into one. And those kind of movies always bunt the hell out of me because I always am left with the feeling that the director should have chosen one of those many stories that they're trying to tell and tell that one really well, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, the conundrum that I have there is to take a movie that is well made, by and large, that has good performances in it, that, you know, has some interesting stories of the, of the eight or nine that are told, you know, three or four of them are quite compelling, and, and write about a movie that's about halfway there. You know, and, and right. sort of say what's good about it, but then also say why it doesn't work. And that's the trick to reviewing something that is, um, you know, a little bit like an unmade bed. You know, it's, it's quite, yeah. you know, it's, it's probably comfortable and it's sort of a nice bed, but it's not quite there. 
Yeah, and, uh, you know, at least you can explain it in a way that um, most movie lovers, I mean, there are some people, they're just, they don't want to waste their time. They don't want to sit down and watch a movie if it's not going to reach a point that it should have. But there are people like yourself and myself who, as long as the director is an interesting person, and they're doing something that's kind of an interesting attempt, then I'm willing to sit down for for two hours, even if it may not be a five-star movie or, you know, didn't, won't be something that I will go out and buy a copy of. I'm willing to sit down just as long as I feel that the person has tried, they've yep. experimented, they're taking risks, and they're doing something that's kind of interesting. Yeah, as long as it's interesting, I'm all over it. Yeah, and, and your reviews kind of get that across. So you're, you're helping both types of people that might be coming to your reviews, those who are just, just tell me the good movies, Richard. Of the four that are out there this weekend, which one should I go see? And then people like me who are going to say, well, okay, that guy, he's done some great movies. Is it worth sort of sitting down? You say, oh, yeah, kind of, you know. Kind of. And there's that, that's where you get in that tricky bit. It's, like, it's kind of good. It's sort of like you have to, you, you have to, you got to be a little uh, careful with that. But either way, you know, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I do take um, – well, I, I, have a, I have two ways of writing reviews. After I see a movie, I either write it within 24 hours, I write the review, or I wait 24 years. Like it's either my gut reaction straight away, which 99% of the movies that I review are, are written – or, you know, the reviews are, are written that way. Um, the 24-year thing, that's uh, a little trickier. But my new book, you know, The Raising Hell book written about the devils, is the result of that. I mean, it, you know, it's a movie that, that gestated within me after seeing it for a very long time before I decided to write about it because it's an extremely complex and perplexing and alarming and weird movie, and it needed that amount of time. It's not something you digest very quickly, and then, you know, you shouldn't be able to have an opinion about that movie straight away. If you do, it's probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you, have, uh, you have something else to speak of. I do, yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this week. Uh, about another aspect of geek culture. I've been touching upon them uh, in this series. We just had um, uh, the San Diego Comic-Con happen a couple of weeks ago. We've got the Fan Expo happening here in Toronto next month. Uh, So a big, huge, you know, gathering of geeks that are coming together. And one of the the big trends that have been happening at those shows has been with cosplay. Uh, This is where people dress up uh, as their favorite characters, roam around, get to, for one weekend at least, sort of embody what it's like to be those superheroes or those characters that they love. Uh, it's been a fantastic trend that has really exploded and evolved, and mainly because it's now become a gateway for women to get involved in that community. Uh, and what women have done with it has just been simply incredible, because I'm, I'm at the point where I remember what it was like, um, say, in the 1970s when it was just Star Trek conventions, Right. And you had people getting together in uniforms, and that was yeah. about it. Uh, and then Goodness. it kind of got to the point where, yeah, <laughs> doing that, I got, I got my little expendable yeah, yeah, shirt yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that. That's exactly. kind of what it looked like in the yeah. 1970s. And it was always kind of a Halloween quality to it, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that at all. People who want to go off to a craft store, get some right. uh, you know, Elmer's glue right. and some construction paper and kind of, hey, look, I'm Spider-Man. That's fantastic. But what has happened is that as women have gone from sort of not wanting to be involved at all, letting all the boys just sit in the basement and play Dungeons and Dragons every Friday night, 
which is sort of what my teenage years were like. Right. Now you actually <laughs> the girls are here finally. Uh, they're getting involved and they have sort of discovered cosplay and taken it and have evolved it to the point where it's become about modeling, it's become about photography, it's right. become about fashion. Uh, you have people who are spending an incredible amount of time who are resourcing all the, the best materials and coming up with costumes that will simply blow your socks off. Uh, where it's now worth going just to see not somebody dressed up and sort of whether or not they kind of make the character or not. Now people are coming out and the quality of their costumes are in some cases surpassing what even the movie studios are putting together. Wow. Uh, what I wanted to talk about though, and I'm going to pull up, I'll pull up a, a really great example of a costume that I think is fantastic. Here we are. So this is wow. Wonder Woman. And yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, this looks like a publicity photo for a new Wonder Woman television series. It sure does, yeah. It, and it's not. This is a, a, a model. Her name is, let me see. I want to make sure I get it here. Uh, one of the things that people get upset is that you just show the photos and you don't. Right, and you don't say who they are, yeah. Uh, her name is Sarah Scott, and uh, this costume is fantastic. I mean, from the leather work to the uh, actual lasso that she has, she also has a magnificent shield that she shows. So I, that's, I mean, just one example. I could sit here all day showing you examples, all day just doing Wonder Woman, even, of people who have come up with fantastic costumes yeah. that make you believe that there might be a movie in the works. But what I wanted to talk about specifically is a very interesting trend because as you have these women getting involved, they're making these fantastic costumes, they're getting to a point where there's not a lot of characters for them to kind of choose from. It's, right. it's an unfortunate thing, but our history when it comes to comic books and movies and video games is that it tends to be 25,000 men characters and male characters and there's three <laughs> female characters. Exactly, and and those female characters tend to be sidekicks or girlfriends or you know the people that are rescued. So what has happened is that we've started to see a lot of women experimenting with gender bending, uh, you know, taking a look at what they can do in terms of of taking on those male roles and how they can play with them. And it's very fascinating. Not only is it uh, fantastic because as a general rule, women tend to get away with wearing men's clothing. Men's clothing, men can't really get away with wearing women's clothing. It's just right. the two don't work. So I'll, I'll give you an example here. Here we have um, a group of women who've gotten together and they now tour around as the uh, Avenger bunnies. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. The if Captain America remember, is quite something right in the middle there. That's a wow. Amazing. So what you have here are women who are taking on the male roles and uh, looking actually really, really good. Yeah, and but subverting if we, it, yeah. Subverting it. And if we reverse that and show what would happen if men were to do the exact same thing. It's not quite as interesting to me. No, no. And, I mean, you have to give them credit. They've done a fantastic job. Yeah. Those costumes look really, really good. They've really given it a fair shake. And, yeah, it just doesn't have the, the same sort of uh, – uh, bite to it. Who is that on the left? I, I, I'm. I, you know, it's one of the uh, Avengers, I believe. Hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not that familiar mm. with the Justice League. I know right. we've got Power Girl on the the right, or Power Boy, and yes. uh, Wonder Woman. Man. Yeah. And then I think that's um uh like a Hawkeye type of character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there we go. But it's been amazing in terms of when you go to these things, how popular these costumes are uh, have been. And then in addition, just how successful it looks when a woman does take on. I'll, I'll show you some of the best ones. This one's been going around the Internet for a while. Thor. Uh, wow. Thor. And just fantastic as a female Thor. I mean, Chris Hemsworth, just step aside because <laughs> we've got a new movie coming out. 
uh, looking fantastic. And her name, um, let me pull it up here, is Tony Darling. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's her real name. I think that's more of her cosplayer name. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I go to the Fan Expo here in Toronto every year. Uh, and I'll be there again this year. And one of my favorite things is seeing the costumes and seeing how much effort goes into building these. And there was one a few years ago that was not sort of what we're talking about here, but there was a, a guy that came dressed as a dinosaur, but he was a big box dinosaur. Everything, had his entire costume had been made out of cardboard boxes, and it was big. I mean, we're talking, you know, he had a tail that went on for three or four feet, and he was nine feet tall and stuff, uh, and it was incredible. And so, you know, I saw him on the Friday, and, you know, I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Saw him again uh, the next day, and he had modified the costume for the Saturday, and then on the Sunday, it was slightly different again. And I was like, wow, that is really cool. It must take so much work. But I, I, I love seeing the people dressed up because the, the amount of time and effort uh, that goes into them are really quite something. Yeah, I mean, it's astonishing not just to be able to uh, come up with a costume and make it look realistic. I mean, you're taking something that was drawn uh, in a comic book or, or right. done in a cartoon and trying to turn that into real life, but also to make it so that it works on your particular body, uh, right, especially right, for right, a lot right. of young girls. This is a major issue. You know, yeah, you might want to look like Wonder Woman, but when you buy the costume and put it on, you know, it, it may look right. It may look yeah. wrong. Uh, when you have women that are starting to play with these concepts, the, the results are very intriguing. I find the level of crea creativity. Now, some of the photos I've been showing you here, and this is a good example, uh, women have been you know, taking it in a very sexualized uh, right. fashion, where it's a yeah. pinup. Here we have a woman dressed up as uh, Darth Vader, and somehow right. uh, it's a very feminine beauty, despite yeah. pretty much a, a, a masculine costume that we're looking at here. Yeah. Another example I'll throw up, which I thought was kind of neat, uh, here is Indiana Jane. <laughs> <laughs> Christy Lynn Picard. Yeah, and, and doing uh, a, you know, I mean, it's a very convincing. Yeah. Uh, but I think what I'm intrigued by the most, what I tend to look for when you see gender bending that's happening, are women who aren't trying to just sexualize the costumes, who aren't trying right. to be pinup models, but go for something that's a little bit more realistic uh, another example that I can show you here, this is uh, a woman who's decided to do a female version. Wow, that's cool. That's very and cool. Yeah, really, really well done. Yeah. Uh, her name is Natalie. Uh, she doesn't have a last name that I could find, but I thought she did a fantastic job. Yeah. And number one, in trying to take the costumes, maintaining the very look of the Joker. Uh, yeah. Here she's got the purple, and she's turned it into a skirt, uh, being able to take her hair. And the makeup, somehow the makeup is very Joker, but it's still very feminine uh, in yeah. the way that she's done it. I thought that was extremely intelligent. There's a lot of talent that's out there. Yeah, and then my, my – go ahead. No, no, just that, that was a very cool one. I like, I like that it wasn't so overly sexualized. It was a, a, a take on the character um, that was just sort of interesting and, and, and uh, modified it, but not just modified it in a, in a very sexualized way. Right. Uh, and here we have a, an example. This has been extremely popular uh, amongst gender bending, and, and it should become obvious right away, uh, is Doctor Who. Okay. And, and because of all the characters that are out there, Doctor Who is the one that uh, regenerates every couple right. of generations, right. becoming an entirely different person. So there is at least that squeak of a uh, chance and opportunity that there might one day be a, a woman cast in the role of Doctor Who. So there has um, never been a, a female Doctor Who? 
There has never been a female Doctor Who. All the Doctor Whos have been male and have been white. And so at a lot of these comic conventions, you do have people who want to at least explore what it would look like if they did cast a woman as Doctor Who. Uh, Here's a room where we have an entire room full of women all dressed as the various different doctors and and companions throughout the generations. Fantastic. (laughs) it's, It's that popular. And then I'll leave it with one more Doctor Who. Uh, this woman has decided to do kind of both takes where, yes, she's, she's tackling a character that is heavily clothed, but right. at the same time she kind of makes her look a little on the sexy side. Right. So there we go uh, with our final Doctor Who, and I will, of course, credit her because I want to. Her name is Desi Raider, uh, and I've seen a number of costumes. She also does a female uh, Mr. Spock that is just <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> wow. Wow. So I will make sure uh, a lot of those photographs come from the Geek X Girls, which is a community right. in Vancouver, which is all devoted to women and cosplaying, and they're very active. They always have new content up each right. week. I will make sure to put a link to their website on HeyAllYouZombies.com. Oh, cool, fun. Well, you know, Moving Pistols at Dawn got uh, or uh, got got or Dueling Pistols at Dawn got got ignored last week. We were unable to do it. Uh, <laughs> this week uh, we're up and running again. And so we have uh, something a little different. We, there are a lot of movies out there that, uh, like 360 that I was telling you about earlier, that use the entire world as their canvas, that shoot in many different countries uh, you know, or, or different parts of the city. Rarer is the movie that uses one location. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And this is what we're going to duel today. <laughs> that's yes. right. Well, and I thought it was an interesting topic because um, a lot of movies today tend to push for everything being hypercut, everything right. being divided into little tiny portions. We're getting to a point now where you see a movie trailer and it looks like you've seen 20 different movies. Uh, I don't know. Have you seen Atlas Cloud? Oh, uh, man, that movie, I don't, it looks cool, but I have no idea what it's about. None. <laughs> None. It looks like six movies yeah. they've been assembled together. You know, I don't. I, if that movie isn't three to four hours long, I don't know how anyone is going to be able to, to watch it in any coherent fashion. I know. My 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 hope here is because Tom Tickford directed it. He's the director of One Will to Run and you know a few other movies that I've liked a lot. Uh, fingers are crossed in a very big way that he can make some sense of this because the trailer has no sense to it whatsoever. <laughs> you know, well, and I'm, I don't know, I am worried because Tom Twicker, it's been a while since he's done something that has, I saw Heaven. Yeah. It was very slow. It, yeah. it really kind of dragged, uh, you know, I mean, so hopefully, I mean, it looks great. Yeah, That doesn't sure necessarily does. mean anything, unfortunately. <laughs> these days. But, uh, so what we wanted to do was kind of celebrate uh, the movies that mm-hmm. take a step back that encompass one story just told really, really well, and in one location or often in one room. Um, The one that I've chosen this week is Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. Oh, yeah, yeah. Rope has has two kind of interesting things about it in the sense that it's one room and... And they try to make it one entire cut. So if you watch the movie from beginning to end, it at least looks like the camera never stops rolling, which is uh, insane. The logistics that are involved behind that are crazy. The secret is that they're actually, the movie has been divided into 10 little sequences, but still very challenging in terms of the actors having to remember all their lines and perform it like it's a theatrical play on Broadway. Yeah, and what happens is that the camera will like uh, pass by someone's jacket 
which is all black, and the screen goes black for a second, and then, you know, that's obviously where the cut is, and then continues. And so it looks like, in editing, it looks like all one shot, but in fact, that's where the break will be. But the, the idea was that the movie looks like it was done in all one continuous go. And very interesting in that all the, the set had to be designed so that couches could be moved out of That's the way right. as right. the camera had fluid motion back and forth. Uh, I'm intrigued by that because I had to do uh, some of that on Canadam because Canadam was very similar. It's just one studio set, one camera yeah. facing basically one way. And, you know, uh, oftentimes on that show, you didn't know it, but I was behind a couch or I was behind Seamus' right, right, chair. Right secretly trying to connect the laptop to get the next segment up and going. Right. Uh, but they used a lot of those tricks for, for rope. There was a British television series called Psychoville that decided mm -hmm. to try to duplicate what rope had done with one of their episodes. And I find that the results are really fantastic. For some reason, the drama is far more tense. It's far more driving when there's no break. When you know the action is constantly going, you're following characters from beginning to end. Uh, the thing about the story in Rope is that the entire crime and its solution happens within that one space. Mm -hmm. You're never blinking. You don't look away. Uh, you have the two characters who feel that they have worked out the perfect crime, and in front of everybody, they commit it and then try to get away with it. And again, in front of everybody, it sort of becomes uh, chased, and, and eventually, well, you get a an Alfred Hitchcock ending, which I... You sure do. But you also have James Stewart in it, too, though. I mean, and, you know, listen, the, the stuff that Stewart did with Hitchcock is uh, among some of my, my favorite of all the Hitchcock movies. Um, I just think that there was something, you know, it, 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 it was like, you know, the, the Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese matchup that just seemed to produce sparks whenever those two worked together. And I'm not even kidding. They made very different kinds of movies. Uh, Jimmy Stewart... Uh, between Vertigo and Rear Window and, and Rope, uh, you know, really uh, shows a huge range that you sometimes forget uh, that, that he had because everyone thinks about him talking like this and being yeah. kind of that guy, you know. And then, you know, like, there's a real difference between the movies that he made uh, before he went to the Second World War and the stuff that he made afterwards. Uh, the stuff that he made afterwards had a, a lot more edge to it, was a lot darker. He seemed to have a lot more weight to him, you know, a lot more, uh, 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 there, there was seemed certainly to be uh, a, a gravitas to him, because who knows, he never talked about what he did while he was in the war, but he was actively involved. And, and he saw things, and I think it changed him in a big way, and I really think you see it on screen. Yeah, he had a real likable charm early on, and I yeah. think that most directors and movie studios sort of latched on that because it was very yeah. easy to market. But you're right. Take a look at the films that he did with Alfred Hitchcock, yeah. and it's like Hitchcock really could care less whether he came off as being likable yeah. so much as he came off as being more intriguing and yeah. interesting. And, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And it is one of the movies that I think a lot of people tend to overlook when they go back and look up Hitchcock right. films. Uh, dial in for murder, psycho, you know, birds, those are all fantastic. But watch uh, just the, the great elegance in terms mm -hmm. of, of Rome, uh, rope, the way that it moves from beginning to end. Fantastic. Well, I, I have chosen a Hitchcock movie as well. I mean, Hitchcock uh, to me is the master uh, just out of arm's reach. I have a book that I just picked up at a yard sale for a buck that I've never read before. It's about this thick, and it's all about Alfred Hitchcock, and I cannot wait. And, and if you look in the bookshelves behind me here, uh, there's a ton of Alfred Hitchcock there. I've, of course, seen all the movies. But I chose Rear Window, you know, because uh, Rear Window, to me, is a movie 
um, that that uh, again shows a different kind of performance from from uh, 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 Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly. Yeah, that's all I'm saying about her. <laughs> You know, of course, Grace Kelly. She was the, you know, really uh, the the pinnacle. I think of what they call the Hitchcock girl. You know, the, the sort of the, the blonde, beautiful blonde. Although in this movie, she's less icy than he typically liked to uh, portray some of the, the female leads in his films. But uh, this movie makes a really interesting use of the apartment that they live in, and uh, or that he lives in. And, you know, shows the outside world in a way that just does nothing except create suspense and, and build this tension. Because you're not really seeing anything. The beauty of that movie is you don't actually ever see that much. But uh, it's like you were at home and you hear a weird sound from down the block and you go, oh. Your imagination starts to run wild. And imagine if you were trapped in your apartment, as Jimmy Stewart is, because he's, he's invalid and he's got a broken leg and he can't get out. And, and you can see where your mind starts to play tricks on you. And that's what happens in this movie. And it is portrayed so beautifully with amazing performances. Raymond Burr is the guy across the, street, uh, across the, the courtyard that is the, the uh, sort of impetus for all the, the, the uh, bad thoughts and things that happen in the movie. But I'll tell you, it's a terrific movie. Uh, it's still so suspenseful and still so uh, beautifully done. takes place in an apartment, but you often look out of the apartment. So it's cheating a little bit but uh, for our one-room uh, scenario. But it's such a fantastic movie that it would have to be my pick. I was reminded when you were saying about Rope, how they moved all the furniture and you know things in a very, in a very choreographed way. One of my favorite movies is uh, stars Jack Nicholson. Uh, it's called The Passenger, the the uh, Antonioni film, and it's it's a fantastic movie. And this gives nothing away other than to say at the very end of the movie, Jack Nicholson is in a hotel room, and the camera does a shot that goes out a window and then continues far beyond that. And I often thought, wow, you know, they must have had a tiny little camera, and they, you know, <laughs> they built this room, and as the camera goes towards the window, apparently the walls, you know, open like an elevator door, and they went through, and it's just when when you watch it the first time, you go, oh well, it's a, it's a shot through a window, and you're and then you watch it again, and you're like, how did they do that? And then it became obsessive, and so pick up this DVD if you can find the DVD. It's a little it's a little trickier to find. But it's one of the rare DVDs that Nicholson actually does uh, a commentary on. And his commentary is, as you might imagine, from Jack Nicholson. Smart, funny, kind of charming, a little bit rude, you know, all that stuff. Right. But it's it's really fun. And he talks about that last shot at the end when they, they move the wall. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. I love that old kind of engineering in terms of trying to understand how to get specific shots. Yeah, and because now they do it with CGI, you know. No, yeah, and 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 back then, I mean, um, a lot of what they were doing was was really like magic, where you can't understand how it's done because you would never imagine the lengths that they've gone through to try to make that happen. Right. Uh, you know, I can't imagine having to get people to actually build that set and how long it would have taken, yeah. and then the number of times they had to practice it to still get a good performance from Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Really yeah, well it's brilliant stuff. So you can find the passenger and do it. But if you're voting on movie pistols at dawn, rear window. Rear window, people. Right. And to, to make a vote, uh, you go to hailyouzombies.com. Mm -hmm. It's always the post directly under the post that has this video playing in it. Uh, there's a little tiny, you know, um, 
uh, graphic that you can click yeah. on to vote for either Richard or for myself. And you've got a tough choice this week. We've got both uh, Hitchcock films. But also we'd love for you to be able to send in your own recommendations or That's comments. Right. If there's a movie that you love that takes place in one location, it doesn't have to be one room. Although that's kind of elegant, it could yeah. be one particular, you know, uh, isolated, trapped, you know, closet kind of like space. Or a community, or uh, there's yeah. another film that comes to mind, uh, Buried, the movie Buried with uh, Ryan Reynolds, right. that virtually, I mean, 99.9% of the movie happens in a box. I mean, it doesn't happen, <laughs> I mean, it's not even in a room, I mean, it's a, it's a guy in a box. And uh, uh, Rodrigo Cortez, the director of that film, the challenge there was to figure out a way uh, to uh, keep it visually compelling, but to also, uh, you know, open it up to a certain extent so that you, you know, you would still feel the claustrophobia, but you, you were, would be able to sit through 90 minutes of it, you know, and uh, they do a great job there. But uh, so it's not exactly your room, but it's the same idea. So, you know, give us ideas like that. If you have, yeah. if you have thoughts on movies like that, please let us know. You know, I think this would actually make for a fantastic film festival. You know, one of those yeah. theme weeks that they sometimes have at, right. at rep theaters and such like that, an entire, you know, because the audience, I mean, the, the best part about seeing these movies in the theater, if you can, is that you're in a room, That's in right. one room for the entire screening of the film, and so it's, it's, a, it's a much deeper experience. Um, well, that's it for our 11th episode. We appreciate you tuning in each week. Uh, by all means, uh, you can help us out by giving us a little like on YouTube or on Tumblr. Those things help in the social media yeah. sense. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks. See you later, people.